It's good. Yeah. Um, I mean, we were doing things pretty safe. We One of the main goals was to err on the side of safety. And w- with that, just try to get the most uh, playing and learning opportunities for the students. And it's tiring. And But we've had some creative solutions. And the students have been extremely resilient. Um, and th- they deserve a break as well as my colleagues at this point, too. So, you know, here we are getting up uh, on the Thanksgiving break coming up soon, and I think everyone will get a, a well-deserved nap or two or five. <laughs> or five. No, man, I'm ashamed to say it. Today I woke up at, like, 4 p.m., man. Oh, wow. Okay, <laughs> well, well, when was the bedtime then? <laughs> I think I went to bed at, like, 8.30 a.m. I'm like, my time is, like, all shifted up right now because I'll – I'll get into doing something. I'm like one of those people. I can't stop until it's finished, you know? So if finish time is like at eight in the morning, then it's like, okay. (laughs) Well, I'm very impressed. I mean, I I used to be an evening person. I used to do all my creative work in the evening and recordings in the evening because, you know, especially if you had roommates or live with someone. um, Well, sometimes I guess that would probably be not the best time to record, but uh, for other things, it tends to work. Um, and then recently, uh, I got a dog, and his internal alarm clock is so precise and so persistent that I have turned into an old man in terms of my sleeping schedule. So I go to bed at like 8.30 or 9 and get up at 5.30 a.m. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So so now I do all my composing in the morning, which uh, it just means I need to get more coffee. So Yeah. <laughs> you got a new dog at like pretty much the same time as I got a cat. I got the, the quarantine pets, right? Exactly. Yeah. Well, I finally gave in, man. My family, all of them wanted a cat. My wife, my daughter, my son, everybody wanted a cat. And I was like resisting and resisting, partly because I'm allergic, but partly just because that's I'm- a good reason. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, I really don't like cats that much, man. Except for jazz cats. Those are the cool cats. Yes, yes, I like my cats. Yeah. But um, now the, the cat is definitely growing on me. Cause it's cute. It's like a kitten, you know, but they grow so fast. He's twice as big as he was like five weeks ago. Yeah. Did your son uh, specifically want a cat or dog or do you know? I think the family preferred a cat. They wanted a kitten. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, he would watch like kitten videos on YouTube and then come crying to me asking for a cat and I was like, no for, for so long. So that yeah, finally <laughs> broke down. But so you've, you've got your new, your puppy, right? Yeah. Yeah, he's uh, he's kept me sane, um, and actually, if anything prevents me from working, because if it gets too late and I'm in my office, he'll sit right next to me and, and stare at me, and just guilt trip me into turning off my computer <laughs> and going and doing other things. But he's been great during uh, during lessons and during Zoom meetings and whatnot. He doesn't he just sleeps. Which I've had fosters in the past that whenever I played, it'd be howling and all kinds of whining and stuff. And so it's always interesting, uh, you know, how will the animal respond to the horn? I'm not sure if howling means they like it or I just need to practice more. I I haven't quite figured that one out. But I know I always feel bad because you see the videos with like people and they're playing and their dog is howling and they're like, oh, how cute it's singing. I'm like, you don't know. Maybe that dog is screaming like stop. stop. (laughs) You don't know. Or it's just trying to harmonize. You know, like we do when they have the radios on. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny, man. Well, cool. We kind of already started. I, I'm doing this more and more. I'm like starting and then I do the introduction. But I want to make an introduction. Oh, here we go. 
Welcome to Music on the Rocks with Chris Castellanos, of course. And today my guest is Dr. James Nagus, and he's an awesome dude. I, I met him a few years ago at a convention, actually. I think it was a an educators convention. And That's right. Yeah, we hung out. We got some, we went to a distillery, got some whiskey. <laughs> yeah, it was funny because, um, of course, I, I'd known about you before this. And also, first of all, I'm super excited to be on this podcast. I love the show. And of course, you're amazing. So, um, but yeah, so it was the in Missouri's music education. I think it was basically their all-state clinic type of thing. Yeah. And uh, and I reached out because I saw that you were there. And I'm like, well, hmm, let's, let's, like, let's grab some food because that's what musicians do, right? <laughs> <laughs> and the thing was that this was like an all-inclusive resort. So it was one of those places that you go and you're basically trapped there. So I'm like, all right, we got to get off this campus. What is nearby? And there was nothing except for this distillery. I'm like, that sounds cool. Let's go check that out. <laughs> we did. Yeah. And it was fun. No, that was perfect, man. I love those music educators conferences. They're a lot of fun. You know, all the teachers are just having a great time and meeting with each other and away from school and away from the kids and just doing their thing. So everybody's having a great time. But you end up kind of stuck at this area for a long, long time. And as you, you pulled me out of the place and took me to a distillery, <laughs> I was very happy. It was fun, man. Well, I will say it's it is interesting. I, I feel like with uh, with Boston Brass, you go to a lot of places that are off the beaten path, and I love that about the group is that you go to smaller schools and smaller events, and and really reach people that you wouldn't normally otherwise get this high caliber performance. So I think that's super cool and can be really uh, impactful in a young student and all people really. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, thanks. Uh, it's super cool though. Thanks. No, I appreciate that. That's one of the things I love about the group also. I mean, it's like you go to a big city or you play at a big school or you play at a big concert hall and then go like to a small town where it's like the, maybe their concert hall is the local high school auditorium. And those are the places where people are super excited. You know, it's like the whole town yeah. to a concert and you'd be surprised at how many people come to those concerts. But I miss and it. I think a lot of people too, they go in and they come out saying, I didn't know a horn could do that. <laughs> At least that's what I thought when I heard you play. Or maybe now it's they're coming out and they're specifically excited to see the guy that does the really cool YouTube uh like overdriven horn covers. <laughs> the the YYZ and all that. Like it's the guy that makes the Wagner tuba sound cool. I'm all about that. <laughs> That's all just fun and games. Well, it, but it makes a difference. And it's also just gets people listening, which I think is, you know, it's how you get people inspired. So well, it's the power of the arts, which makes me think of that. Uh, did you ever see that PSA? It was, I think it was uh, Johannes Brahms and he busts through this wall and the little fake uh, product is Raisin Brahms. And it was this whole thing that's the power of the arts. Uh, and it's this great little commercial that I wish they did more of silly things like that these days. I don't think I ever actually saw that. It's on YouTube. I'm sure someone listening knows what I'm talking about. Man, you're you're like, you flipped the interview around already. <laughs> it's like you're interviewing <laughs> me. That's it. You're, you're good at this. Anyway, I wanted to make sure everybody knew that you're lecturer of horn at the University of Georgia. And you're on staff at the Kendall Betts Horn Camp. Are you? How is that going this year? I mean, are they doing any online stuff, or is it just? Uh, yeah, actually, um, and the Kendallbets Horn Camp's been a, a big part of my hornistic life. Uh, I went there as a camper back in 2004. I was 
uh, high schooler, didn't know which end to blow in, and they taught me how. <laughs> and then I was staff for a number of years, and fortunately been faculty for the last couple. And because of all of the pandemic and COVID stuff, um, this past summer we shifted to an online um, experience. And then past the online experience, uh, we've had these monthly Horn Camp Connect sessions, which are group warm-up, and then interview featuring various people. Uh, I did the first one a couple months ago, and I think they're gearing up towards um, basically events throughout the year just to help inspire people and to keep them you know, playing and keep the horns coming out of the cases and being played, so... Uh, just like all of our teaching and playing, and we've had to adapt and really kind of think of creative ways to still engage with people and, and make music. Right. Uh, it's so important. It's so important because it is easy right now, especially a few months ago when you know school wasn't in session and everybody was kind of locked down and stuff. It's easy to just kind of have the horn over there. Next thing you know, you haven't touched it in a week or two, which you would never have done because there's no outlet, there's no whatever. So these kind of things are so important. Uh, yeah, it's really cool that it's happening. I mean, I think everyone should ask for a uh, a little horn holder, like a little horn stand for Christmas. Uh, if you don't have one already, because then it really, if your horn is out and you can see it, you'll be so much more likely to pick it up and, and play a couple notes and. I have mine in the background of my, uh, either in my home office. And so I, I stare at them when I'm doing, I mean, anytime I'm on Zoom, I can see them in the background. So I know they're there. So if I haven't got enough practice in today, it, they're just back there saying like, you pick me up, play me. But uh, <laughs> Yeah, man. Well, the inspiration that's online right now is like unparalleled from any time that there's ever been, I think. I mean, it's coming at people from everywhere. Really, you know, I mean, right. you're seeing like digital concert halls from great orchestras everywhere that are free or were free for a while, which is unheard of. The way it's so easy now to be a creator, it used to be hard. You used to have to like own a bunch of stuff or go into a studio and spend a bunch of money just to do it. And now it's like right. the technology's in your hand and you can create and people are starting to learn this and, and it's a good time. Because now we're kind of stuck for a while until maybe one of these vaccines works out or something. Right. Yeah. No, it's been inspiring to see just the creative solutions that people have come up with. And uh, yeah, like you said, I mean, I think we all consider a smartphone as not like having basic technology, even though it's a ridiculously powerful little computer. But for instance, you know, having like that acapella app that people can create duets and quartets in and then post those. That's really great up all the way to, you know, some of the, the multi-track stuff that we both do in our home studios. And, you know, some of the things require a little bit of an investment with equipment and microphones and a lot of people doing Zoom lessons. I mean, that they've been investing in those things. But once you get past that hurdle, um, then you can do some really, really professional sounding stuff from just, you know, your small little space. And like you said, that that's opened up a lot of doors for people. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I was talking to Marty Hackleman not too long ago, and he was talking about how you used to have to, if you wanted to like multi-track something and make it sound great and like put a video with it. I mean, forget about putting the video with it like, you know, 30 years ago or something. But if you just wanted to multi-track something by yourself and make it sound great, you either needed like 
a hundred thousand dollars worth of equipment <laughs> or you needed to like like uh you know go into a studio and do it and now it's just like oh yeah this app for 5.99 or whatever so yeah yeah. And there's so much equipment and technology out there too. I'll say one of the strangest things that I never thought I would have in my home studio is uh, an LED ring light, which I have above my monitor, just yeah. for the sole reason of making my face look slightly less terrible. <laughs> and, you know, just having a little bit more lighting. Um, it's like those selfies when the people like white their face up so much that they like don't have a nose anymore. And like, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. It looks like the, what the AI artificial intelligence movie, Steven Spielberg or any, any yeah, scene yeah. in a film where the alien or the creepy child is emerging from the white light. Right. And just get like no features whatsoever. We are all <laughs> those creepy aliens <laughs> over zoom. Yeah. Yeah. Man. <laughs> well, cool. So you're perhaps most well-known in the horn world for your compositions. And uh, it's a really prolific list that you've got. I mean, you've written so much for the horn, unaccompanied, with piano, with multiple instruments, um, with mixed media. I mean, all different formats. And it's it's really, really beautiful music, too. Uh, Thank you. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'll tell you, Boston Brass, for our, um, I think it was our 25th year celebration, we commissioned a new fanfare for every concert we played. I mean, there oh, were wow. probably 90 fanfares that year. It's kind of like, uh, wasn't that what Stokowski did back in the day? It was part of Copeland's fanfare. It was a series of like all new fanfares and things like that. Right. Yeah, it, it was It was totally like that. And so every venue that we played at, there was a commissioned fanfare. Wonderful. I got to tell you, out of 90 of them, maybe five of them were like, fanfare <laughs> we're like oh. we're, but I, was, <laughs> I mean there were a few of them where it was like you know it was like that kind of like beeps and boops and like new music and I'm like how sure, are you sure. supposed to open a concert with the i mean i don't know i so it's what i'm getting at is the way that you write for the instrument is so appealing to the ear you don't have to be a musician to appreciate it you're not writing, uh, oh, how clever this was. Or if you are, you're still making it something to appreciate. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> how did you even get into composition? Uh, well, I had some great teachers and I had a lot of music in my youth. I mean, the kind of, I guess the, the real origins go way back into when I started music in general, uh, which was piano when I was five or six or sometime around that threshold. And supposedly I asked my mother for piano lessons. Now, I <clears throat> I don't remember that because I hated practicing piano. <laughs> and still you have to, you know, I really have to push myself to practice even horn. But especially back then, a six-year-old actually wanting to practice, I, I don't believe that. Oh. Uh, <laughs> but I had a, a really great teacher from the very first day of, of piano lessons. And she pushed us early on to write. Julian Markovich was her name at the time, and uh, she was a master's student at University of Michigan, because I grew up just outside Ann Arbor, and uh, they have a wonderful program there. I ended up doing my undergrad at, at Michigan, but um, so I had a great teacher that encouraged writing, and so even from second grade, I remember putting a tape recorder behind the piano, and then pressing record, and then just noodling, or I had figured out a little melody, plunking it out pressing stop, taking the tape recorder to the kitchen table. And my mom and I sat there and 
you know, note by note, play, note, rewind, play, note, rewind, and transcribed this piece. So I was doing harmonic and melodic dictations when I was six, which sounds like some kind of torture. Uh, <laughs> My son would think it is. <laughs> yeah, but uh, I'll tell you what, it really prepared me well uh, for oral skills in college. So I kept doing this and it was fun. I just enjoyed, you know, sitting at the piano and what I call noodling or just improvising. And I did that for a while and then MIDI notation programs came out and then I started figuring that out. And I, you know, I grew up listening to classical music and some some rock and roll, but like not hardcore rock and roll like we're talking Beatles Beach Boys and that kind of stuff like really cool harmonies uh but not like heavy metal or anything like that um a lot of film scores as well which I think is part of where my I guess if you say musical accessibility comes from because I was it was and am a huge you know John Williams fan for instance he's my one of my big idols and just the way that thematically and harmonically he can instantly you know his music makes sense um you know what you should feel without necessarily being told that you have to feel it like that kind of way the music uh works on the uh, affect which is i think great so i listened to all this stuff fast forward i started playing horn in sixth grade of middle you know middle school which i think is when a lot of people start didn't really write much horn stuff until I got into college. And then I was surrounded by people that are way, way, way better than me. And I was like, wow, these people are great. What if I write something for them? That would be cool. And we could make music together. And that would be great. Uh, which is one of the great things about you know universities is you're surrounded by so many really cool, wonderful, creative people and people that are willing to collaborate and make music. I think that and- that's the best one of the best things about university finding the people who are like-minded who have similar passion as you and who are into spending time doing that you know yeah and who are not afraid to nerd out about music exactly there's i feel uh i don't know if stigma is the right word but there's something uh, you know to be said about oh those those musicians those band geeks and whatnot. It's like, oh, I'm sorry. I find this enjoyable. Does that make you sad? <laughs> you know. <laughs> uh, but yeah, and the same thing at like horn workshops, for instance. You know, it's a it's a spot where you can totally riff on your favorite Mozart recording, and that's okay. Like this is the place to do it. So university is the same kind of thing. Like have listening parties where you listen to, you know, everyone brings in a different recording of the finale of Shasti Five, and you compare and contrast. Like that's that's cool. And it's accepted, and in fact, people should do it more. Yeah, you know what? It's so funny you mentioned that. I just did a clinic for a university on Zoom, and I talked about exactly that. My college experience was so great, and I learned so much because I had a roommate who was a great musician, and we rented out a house together, and everybody else was kind of at the dorms. So Mm -hmm. our house was like the place to be. Because you could crank the speakers loud, yeah? Exactly, yeah. We didn't have walls between <laughs> neighbors or so. It could be late at night, and we would even go up a notch where we would tell everybody to go to the music library. We'd say, hey, today we're going to do Heldenleben at our house. Mm-hmm. We'll be at our place at 7 p.m., you know, BYOB, and like BYO horn part also. And we had like this, uh, one of those big, oh, this is a long time ago. So it was a big screen TV, but it was maybe a 50 inch big square with a huge So it weighed 
two tons. It, it was huge. Yeah. But it was cool because I had these DVDs of Von Carrion conducting Berlin and Salty conducting. And I would put on the DVD so you could see the conductor and you could hear the music and everybody would be lined up in our living room playing their parts along. And it, my buddy was a trombone player. So it wasn't just the horns. It was like other nice. instruments too. And we would just be rocking through these symphonies like, you know, almost every other night. And it was just, it was a party, you know? And so we were at a school, which wasn't a huge music school. Um, it had a good band department, but the orchestra, I mean, we were playing Mozart and Haydn and all because they couldn't handle like a Mahler house or something, but we were getting that every night with Mm -hmm. the greatest orchestras in the world. So it was like, we, we learned a lot. What I'm getting at is that whole uh, community that you create, that sense of community in college, which I know, I know it sucks right now because you can't really do that because uh, of everything going on. But yeah, uh, when the, all this is said and done, I mean, I think that that is something that's really important. And right now, what you can do is what you were talking about, which is do this, have like a Zoom meeting between like five people and just like everybody bring something to the table, have a hang. I mean, I feel like accessibility is at an all-time high with things like Spotify and with YouTube. Uh, You can, uh, I mean, I think we've all gone down the YouTube rabbit holes uh, of classical music or anything, really, any music. You can find so many new and interesting musics just by clicking related videos of things that sound interesting. Um, But yeah, getting little little Zoom sessions together for listening parties. Um, We actually did something interesting here at UGA, which is a common hour period that's every Wednesday at a certain time. And the idea is that we have school-wide things. So we've had some um, some guests come in and, and be interviewed. We had a little open mic session where people could play. Uh, works better in person than online, but it, it actually worked fairly well online. And then we also have a mixtape series. So uh, various faculty uh, can just, for an hour just curate a playlist of just whatever they want and everyone just kind of pops in and they can talk about it and just listen. And that could be the entire 50 minutes could be just one piece or it could be uh 51 minute pieces if you really wanted to. Yeah. That's been a lot of fun. What do you think about owning music? I mean, not just having Spotify and having everything available, but just like actually owning albums, CDs or, or LPs or, or whatever it is that you've got. Well, I don't think we want to be tethered to the internet because I know so many things require internet connection. And then when that goes down, I mean, how hopeless do we feel when our power goes out? Right. Because it's like, what What am I going to do? Read a book? <laughs> <laughs> but then you don't have lights. So um, I think, you know, there's nothing wrong with having a, a really large collection of uh, of CDs and of LPs and whatnot. I think... That's good. And when one should have those, those hard copies. And I know, I mean, I'm not affected by this very much, but my understanding is that the royalties involved in streaming are next to nothing. So it's, yeah, it's a tricky thing. I know, I think the best solution is that when you have distribution of a hard copy that also includes a code for a digital purchase, then that's the best of both worlds. Because then you can have the hard copy and then you can have the one, the digital one you can just put on your iPhone or whatever. Yeah, I agree with what you're saying. And I lean towards having physical albums, even though it's more expensive and, you know, you have to own the equipment to play it. 
But I mean, there's really nothing like owning a nice stereo and having like a CD player and a record player and owning the physical albums. I mean, it's like there's something about having the physical album, reading the liner notes, seeing the pictures in there. And it's, I don't know, it it seems like the more accessible everything is. Yeah, you can have Spotify. Yeah, you can have Apple Music for a monthly fee and have everything at your fingertips. But I think that when you've got everything at your fingertips, literally, you tend to just go, eh, okay, well, I guess I'll check it out later. It's not special anymore. You know, it's not like, oh, this new album came out and I've got the album and I'm going to read everything. I'm going to know everything on this album and every page and listen to it while I'm reading through the liner notes. And and that used to be an experience that in the past, you know, 15 years or so has gone away. And it was part of the listening experience, part of having an album, you know? Yeah. And it can just be hard to choose too. When you have so many selections, it's how do you even make that choice? Like Netflix or like I have a a Steam account for video games and it's like, man, I have nothing to play. And then I look and I have 80 games that I've never even installed once. Like, but yeah, but no, I just, you know. (laughs) Yeah, man. I don't know. I don't know if you're the same way, but me and my wife, when it's dinner time and we're just like, oh, we'll make something and we'll watch something tonight. Yeah, It never fails. I'm done with the food and we're still scrolling for something to, to watch, you know? I mean, I can give you advice there. Just keep <laughs> re-watching The Office. <laughs> I've done that three times. Only? Those are amateur numbers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. Until they take it away. And then uh, if they're still planning on taking it off of Netflix. I don't know. I think that's a really bad business idea. Uh, so I guess we'll see what happens. You know what I wish would come out on a streaming service is the Joe Schmo show. Did you ever see that? No, I've heard of it, but I never saw it. What was it about? It was amazing. It was a reality show where they all live in a house and they do ridiculous things and get kicked out one by one. (laughs) But everybody was in on it except for one dude. Oh, good. good. And so they would have ridiculous scenarios around the house and they would come up with all these storylines and plots that he was not in on but literally everybody else in the show was in on it was kind of like like uh like the truman show a little bit exactly that's what i was looking for and uh it was awesome i loved it they did the joe schmo show and then they did another one where it was like a guy and a girl and the girl you know women are just intuitive like that she she figured it out you know, and yeah. so they had to like bring her in. And so now she was part of the show and the dude still didn't get it. So it's like, yeah, okay, women, they are more intuitive, but you can't find it anywhere. So anyway, I wish right. that would stream. Sorry, that was way too long for. Uh, well, here's the thing that always kills me about reality TV shows is that uh, what reality TV show is anything like the reality that you and I live in? <laughs> like if this was an actual reality TV show, then it would be, okay, let's watch this person get up at 11 a.m., you know, eat a bowl of cereal with maybe questionably expired milk, uh, (laughs) do a couple errands around the house, and then go to bed early. Right. That's reality, right? Pay some bills. (laughs) (laughs) On to some more music stuff, man. Are you from a musical family? I mean... So my my parents are both, I would consider, very musical, but never, uh, weren't by profession. So they they both played when they were younger, and uh, my mother still does play uh, cello and flute. 
um, and some local orchestras. But they, my dad also, I mean, just always listening to music. He knows more about symphonies than I will ever know. He's listened to more symphonies. He's gotten through all of the traditional symphonies that he had to go and search and find, like, Estonian symphonists of the 1921s, you know, and it's like, get that specific. Um, but they've always been very supportive of uh, my musical studies. And I have a sister who's uh, three years older than me, and she's a oboe and English horn player, and also every woodwind under the sun. She's, uh, I would say a doubler is an understatement, if you know what I mean. She She can pick up a new instrument in a day if you give her, if you make her take that long to pick it up. Um, but they were very supportive of our music and always are. And, uh, and yeah, so, I mean, I'm very fortunate that when we decided that we wanted to go into music studies that they were like, yeah, of course we support you. Yeah. That's cool. They didn't try to divert you from. No. So is this what you're, is this what you're passionate in? Then go for it. That's awesome. Yeah. So do you still keep up with, well, you have to kind of keep up with the piano so that you can write, right? Yeah. yeah so I, uh, there was a lapse in my piano when I started horn. Uh, I kind of just, I switched from piano lessons to horn lessons and that uh, put the piano to the side. And I started picking it back up. I always played for fun here and there, but I started really picking it back up, I would say, in my master's at University of Florida, where I studied with Paul Bachelor, who was tremendously influential in my composition and horn and, and life. And another one that I attribute, you know, a lot of just accessibility in music. Like he he really taught me how to make music playable and accessible and um, so that when you, you know, play through it the first time, it's more or less what you're trying to communicate. Um so I started writing for piano more at that point, and then I'm like, "Oh boy, I need to, <laughs> I had to get my piano back in gear because I, I can really appreciate people that can write beyond their skill. For me and piano, I just I I don't know. I tend to write at my ability level because I can physically play it in the moment, and then also I realize that I will probably have to play it at some point, and so I don't want to make it too difficult. <laughs> Yeah. knowing that I'm going to have to play it later. Right, yeah. uh, so I definitely started practicing for that. And then when I was really thinking about, you know, continuing in academia and teaching horn, my goal was, well, I really want to have my piano ability to where I can play with my students and for my students. Um, because I think the chamber aspect of music is so important. And um, it's something that for so many students, we get at the very end of the process. So you play solo, 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 solo. Oh, here's one week before your recital. We're going to put piano with it. Right. So that's not that's not enough time, and that's not enough fun, really, because it's making music with other people. So playing in lessons uh, through repertoire, and then if I'm able to on recitals, actually, this past week uh, we had uh, my one of my seniors had a recital, and then one of my DMA students has a, had a recital, and I played all of the piano that was involved on both of those recitals. <laughs> so like Neuling Bagatelle, the Franz Strauss fantasy opus two, uh, one of my pieces, which, you know, I could fake, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and some other repertoire as well. Yeah. You can fake it. You're, the composer meant to do that. That's what it's a new edition. Yeah. Yeah. Did you hear that horrendously wrong note? That's just a new edition. <laughs> <laughs> so, so when you're going to write a new composition, 
where do you begin? I mean, do you have an idea of what you want to write? Is there like a melody and then you create around that? Or is there a, a thought of like the name of a piece that you write around that? Yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, I don't have any continuity in the way that I write. It, I can come at it from a number of different angles. Um, oftentimes it starts with just the instrumentation. So what am I writing for? And sometimes if it's a commission, that dictates it. Other times it's just what I feel inspired to write. Um, I would say the title usually comes later in the process. Um, uh, from the thing that I try to get first is more the emotion that I'm going for. And that'll help guide decisions that I make too, in terms of like what key or what mode or what the pacing is. And then as the piece kind of organically comes along, then I'll try to figure out a title that best fits, you know, the piece. Um, sometimes I get inspiration from, you know, a tune that just either I heard somewhere or just kind of popped into my head. Um, and other times it's maybe a rhythm, you know, there's all of these different kind of musical elements that can be seeds in terms of compositions. Um, for uh, one piece, which I know that we're going to talk about today, which is uh, Visions, which is the new piece that I'm writing for Horn and Fixed Media, that piece, well, it started with the idea, number one, of doing it, right. <laughs> and uh, kind of the limitations and what that was. But then otherwise, it it was two chords. And I was just playing around on the piano, and I came across these two chords, which was a B minor chord and an A major with a, with a sus four, mm-hmm. uh, sharp four. And I'm like, this is a really cool sound. So I'm just going to roll with it. And I'm and it's going to then inform decisions that I make later in the piece in attempt to create unity too. Uh, not only kind of inspiration, musical inspiration, but uh-huh. unity, which I think is important for a listener, especially a first-time listener, that they get a sense of, okay, I understand this piece because I've heard these things before or earlier. And I'm, when I'm hearing them again it's helping me make sense of the piece. Yeah. I can hear that in your writing sometimes in the things that I've played. It sounds like you're almost creating a setting before you create the melody. It's, it seems like if it were a painting, you were creating the world and then putting the center characters into that world afterwards with melody. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because I know a lot of people a lot of composers and musicians like program notes, for instance, which what does your typical program note have in it? It has either the, this is what the piece means to me, or this is how I constructed the piece. Um, for me, I don't care about the latter. Like, so, you know, I was very clever and I used this theme here and then I did a permutation here. It's like, that's, that's great. You know, and that's something that we talk about with other comp students. Um, as a listener, I don't really care how the piece is constructed. I care how it sounds mm-hmm. more so. Um, but at the same time, I don't ever want to tell someone what to think or how to listen to it. And so I'm very vague. If I even have program notes, I'm very vague on what I say because I really want people that play and listen to my music to draw their own conclusions. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that one of the reasons why music works just in general is because we all relate to it in a personal and unique way. Right. So who am I to tell you what that is? Hmm. 
Yeah. I really like that. I think that you struck on something that I think a lot of people have a problem with new music for this reason. And it's it goes back to what I was talking about with the fanfares, which is, yeah. unfortunately, it seems like a lot of new music is like a kind of, hey, check out how clever I was or what I did here. Or they, they have to explain what's going on in the music. And it's not just beautiful or it's not just something that you can like, man, I really want to hear that part again. I'm humming this melody. I think there's a place in music for both of these. I think there's absolutely a place for music that is cleverly constructed. And, you know, if we're thinking about pieces that are constructed by chance or procedurally generated type things, like that's, that's actually, that's cool. And it's the same way that I think I relate to a lot of modern art where aesthetically I don't necessarily i wouldn't put it on my wall but then i read how it was created or it was the first time that someone has done this thing right i can appreciate it and so i think there's absolutely value but me personally i prioritize what i consider the aesthetic aspect or the aspect of i'm creating this music for someone to play to connect with and maybe to learn from and so that those are just my priorities but i won't say necessarily that certain musics have more worth or value. Yeah. Well, and I'm certainly not trying to say that uh, your more melodic music has more value than another. It's just, I think it's more attainable to people who are a general audience. Who are the people who are paying for concerts most of the time? I mean, let's get honest. I mean, it's like most of the audiences in a concert hall and it's a general audience. Most of them didn't go to music school. You know, they they just want to hear something that either they know that means something to them emotionally or they can listen to and they can they can get and i think sometimes musicians have to understand how to program too the reason that there are quintets that can tour and be successful touring and bring in audiences of 800 to 1200 to 2000 is because we're playing stuff that isn't uh, over the audience's head <laughs> too often. I mean, mm-hmm. we, the arrangements are such that it is virtuosic and it's fun for us to play as well as fun for the audience to listen to. But we're not going to get 2,000 people at a recital for new music. Right. Or something like Ewald, which is a lovely piece. But <laughs> as you're right, it's about knowing your audience and about figuring out what they want. Um, or what you think will inspire them. And I mean, you've you've taken part in something that I hope to someday, which I think is a trend that uh, is wonderful for orchestras, which is video game music concerts. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, I imagine the crowd that you, you played in with one of those. I think, did you do one of the Zelda shows? I did. Yeah, I've done quite a bit of... A bunch of them, video games live and stuff. I mean, those crowds, they're super electric, aren't they? They're electric and they are not musicians. And that's yeah. that's... The best thing. I mean, it's even when I play in Vegas, they do the Star Trek convention too. Yeah, like, yeah. Those people are not musicians. They are they are Star Trek nerds. And the people who go to the video game live concerts or whatever it is, those are video game nerds. And the people who go and watch the movies being played live, like E.T. or Star Wars or Indiana Jones or Back to the Future, they want to see a movie. But now they're experiencing it in a different way with the live music and they're paying attention more to what's going on and why they enjoy playing this game. If they're playing this game or watching this movie and the orchestra just stopped playing, the movie would would not be nearly as effective or the game wouldn't be as effective or depth wise. And it's teaching an appreciation for live music, for instrumental music to people who 
maybe generally wouldn't even have thought about it, you know? Yeah. And I, I don't think we necessarily need to nece- pull like the, the ET crowd into hearing Prokofiev, although I think they would like it a whole lot, but it's just getting these people, like you said, to listen to live music. And so, you know, you won't lose the Beethoven subscription people, but right. you will gain on the side, the video game and the soundtrack and the, you know, the touring sting <laughs> group people. Uh, the Sting still tour. I, I yeah, don't know. Well, he played okay. last year with the Utah Sims. Yeah, I know that much. Well, there you go. Yeah, I'm sure that was a packed house. And, you know, every one of those video game things or movie things or whatever, those are always sold out. And yeah. you even have to add additional days of it and stuff. And it's like, I don't know. I mean, I think that it can act as kind of a gateway drug for for younger uh, <laughs> audience also you know it's like oh i really enjoyed that maybe i would like watching a beethoven symphony too even though i don't know what that is you know yeah absolutely so even if if it affected five percent of the audience in that way that's doing something to grow uh, our genre you know what was that study that went out probably 10 years ago they um had taken kind of a poll of the subscribers of an orchestra and the median age. And the median age was like 50 or something. And then they did the same thing 20 years later. And the median age was like 70. It was like the same people, the same people, you know? Interesting. So that's what we need to get away from in what we're doing. We need to kind of cross that bridge and bring the people in with that, for lack of better word, gateway drug <laughs> of, yeah. Music that they well, appreciate. I know in just a lot of music creation that we still consider concert music, like I think the stuff that I write, you'd consider concert music. I think there absolutely is a trend in terms of a new era of music that is accessible, tuneful, melodic, you know, however you want to describe it, because of people like like Paul Bassett, for instance, that are encouraging it, people like you that are playing this new music. <clears throat> and also just the technology of having um, music notation software, being able to record stuff. Like I think this is making and empowering uh, and giving a lot of people a voice. And especially recently, um, I think we're all taking a step in the right direction to give everyone a, more of a voice, you know, underrepresented composers and, and just getting more music out there, which is fantastic. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, I wanted to ask you about mixed media because Mm -hmm. I think that that's something that is really, it's an interesting concept and it's also becoming more important. I don't know why it's not more popular. Maybe it is more popular and I just didn't, I didn't see it before, but when I was a student, it was hard. Like you said, you get together with your accompanist at the last minute, you know, and when you've got something, you buy a piece like your saga and you've got your accompaniment all the time and you can play along with it. You just put on your headphones and you're playing, you know, with your accompaniment. And I think that something like that is invaluable, especially in this time. And that's why I was really particularly interested in, in uh, talking to you about this piece visions, you know, and the genesis of that. But how did you get into mixed media? And do you do all of the mixed media voices yourself? Yeah, no, it's, it's a great question. And you know, I think a lot of 
mixed media, at least in, in terms of pieces like Saga and Visions, it's electroacoustic, I think is the technical term, right? Versus like live electronics and whatnot. Um, what I do in terms of what I consider mixed media is basically orchestration that uses sound libraries and synthesizers and, and stuff like that. That's all uh, on my computer here. And so uh, it's basically like MIDI on steroids is, is a little bit. It's an attempt to make computer generated sound sound more realistic and thus be more something that you could have in a concert and, you know, be more interesting to play with. So uh, I I got my first sound library when I finally had a computer that had enough memory and RAM to support it. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, it was just fun I, just to sequence things together to try to recreate, you know, movie scores or to make my compositions that had just been MIDI sound before to try to make them sound more realistic. And, uh, you know, these sound libraries that they, they record real musicians and then basically map it with different velocities to to keyboards so that when you're pressing a C3 on the piano, it's playing back a recording of an actual piano playing that same note. And so you can do pretty amazing things. So for pieces, uh, and I, I use this also in my commercial composition as well, uh, just to, to get quick, realistic music. Um, and so I sequence everything for pieces like Saga, Soundings, and the new piece Visions, uh, I use a digital audio workstation called uh, Sonar. It's similar to like Ableton, Pro Tools, Reaper, um, Logic, you know, all of those different types of programs. And I will usually do live entry. So I'll have, I'll map a sound to the keyboard and then I'll play it in live time. And I may quantize it if I, you know, didn't play in time or not. And then I'll just layer sounds and I'll just kind of, right that way instead of uh, paper and pencil or just inputting individual notes. I'll just, I'll play everything and then I'll mix and I'll tweak and tune and everything later. But it, that technology has just opened so many doors. Yeah. That technology is part of the reason that I wish that I played more piano. <laughs> I got to tell yeah. you, I mean, I, I do a fair amount of arranging. I do a little bit of writing but I'm so limited, man. And it's like, I can get around on the keyboard enough to where I can arrange fairly quickly. But mm -hmm. if I wanted to write something and there was a piano part to it, I, I wouldn't even know where to start. You know, that's why I think when I was in music school and I was taking piano courses, I was so one track, like with horn, I was just like in my head, I'm like, why do I need to take piano? Blah, blah, blah. Why, right. why is it was a roadblock to me, not like something that, that I could use later on. And I wish that I had looked at that a little bit differently. You know, It's never too late. Uh, I think that's one of the great things about piano. It's one of the most accessible instruments for any age. And just like any skill, all it takes is just a little bit every day and, and you'll keep getting better. So, well. I don't know. I don't know if there's any hope for me, man. I can't get my <laughs> my hands can't well, do different things at the same time. I'm not like multi uh, coordinated like that. Well, I think the main issue that you have is that I don't know how you get done all the stuff you do within 24 hours. So maybe if you had 28 hour days, then <laughs> you could do all of you know your touring and your recording and your mixing and your family and your everything that you do, and a little piano. <laughs> well. Yeah, it's, uh, I can I can say with full confidence that it's never going to happen for me. But 
<laughs> but I wish. So anyway, the reason I say that is anybody who's in music school listening right now, and you're thinking the same way as I was, which is uh, piano is a roadblock. Please rethink your situation because uh, in a decade or so, you're going to look back and go, man, I really wish I uh, put more time into that. Yeah. Well, I think for a lot of instrumentalists too, that aren't pianists, but do enjoy piano. Piano is, it can be a Zen moment. It can be, you know, a meditation or it can just be something that's fun. That's not horn. So if you have a really difficult horn session, you, you just can't get that coprosh in D flat transposition up to speed. <laughs> then, okay. You put that away and you pull up a hunchback of Notre Dame piano book and you just play through that. You know, that can be the escape that you need. Uh, or Christmas carols at Christmas time, or you know, yeah. just anything karaoke tracks. Who knows? Yeah, yeah, oh, that's awesome, man. So back to the piece, visions. So yeah. where are you with writing this, and what was kind of your uh, thought process on it? Uh, it's coming along. It's it's getting very near the end of the process. Um, the end of the of the whole process is always the longest because it has to do with the fine tuning and you know as a lot of composers are it's it's hard to call something done most pieces they're never done because you always find little tweaks and, and turns and things uh but going back to the beginning of the piece um i know you had played saga for the tcu virtual horn the horn fest the virtual concert right yeah and then um Awesome performance, by the way. Crushed it. And then we we had talked about, you know, maybe doing something, another one of these style pieces, maybe something with a little bit uh, more meat on the bone for the horn part, because Saka, I would say, is very accessible. But uh, there, uh, a lot of us like an extra little challenge, too. So what would that look like? What would that sound like? Um, but then life got busy and that got put on the back burner. And then with all of this... Uh, COVID stuff happening and, you know, recitals being postponed or reduced or restricted. There was really, I think, an increased need for more repertoire that you could play like self-sufficiently, right? right? So, and nothing against pianists. In fact, I mean, uh, collaborative pianists, again, it's part of the most fun that we do as musicians is making music with other people. But if we can't physically do that, what do we have? So, I think that's where we said, okay, let's let's do this. Let's do this piece. Let's do another piece that, that could be something that people could program on recitals and and hopefully have fun and be inspired to practice because that's another big thing. Let's be real. Um, inspiration and motivation is a lot more difficult these days when we don't have those goals. We don't necessarily have those performances or those music-making experiences. So what do we do? Mm -hmm. We have to find music that excites us that's fun and that was my goal is to write something that would be fun and exciting and a bit challenging so you'll get better you know as you practice it <laughs> um and in the same vein as saga because uh i think that was something that was unique in our repertoire right thinking back to horn and well the old way was horn and tape right that's what they used to call it when it was literally the cassette or reel to reel or something like that right <laughs> But I think a lot of those pieces we kind of call squeak fart pieces, right? <laughs> Bleep bloop pieces. Yes. Yeah. Uh, some are wonderful. Others are just mm, maybe not as accessible. Yeah. So 
what would a modern take on that sound like? And uh, for me, it's just this kind of fixed media, multimedia, synthetic, trying to sound realistic. Uh, sometimes I call it horn and film score. That's why I thought it was so fun. I mean, first of all, thank you for sending me Saga because I know I got a hold of you and I was asking if there was anything that you had kind of like that. The TCU thing got canceled um, because of COVID. Like I was supposed to do it in early April and that was like right when everything was starting. Right. Oh yeah. And uh, so I couldn't go in person, but still wanted to do something, but I couldn't get together with an accompanist. So I got a hold of you for that. And you sent me this piece and man, I got to tell you, I had so much fun playing it because most horn players, they love the horn in movies. You've got all this going around with you, this epic soundtrack, and then the horns come in. And that's it's like the what, hero. It's always the hero. Yeah. And that's like what playing the whole piece was like playing with that track. So that's why I wanted to see if you were interested in writing something that was an even meatier horn part, but was yeah. all in that same vein, you know? I, I did have to dial it way back. So if I was writing it just for you, it would have been maybe unplayable by mortals. So. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about all that. <laughs> I, I think everyone listening agrees. Well, I'll tell you what, I am so excited for this piece. I'm really excited. And I think that it's going to be something really fun for people, especially now where a lot of people are doing digital recitals for school, um, mm -hmm. pre-record stuff, or they're just, you know, sitting at home and they don't get to play with a piano player like we were talking about this is a solution. I mean, this, you're playing with like a full on, like epic, like Hollywood orchestra every day, practicing it with the technology. Now, all you do is if you've got a Mac, you can like literally dump that into GarageBand and, and record yourself playing with it, record your practice sessions. Oh, I didn't like it. Uh, record it again. You know, you can practice that way and listen back real time. And that's invaluable. Recording yourself is important. Recording yourself with other people is even better because you can hear how bad your time is and how bad your pitch is and, and all that stuff. You oh, you, you bring up a really good point. I think those are the two things that are not addressed as much during all of this isolation is it's hard to hold ourselves accountable for pitch and time if we're not playing with other people. Right. Um, and so something that has a pre-recorded accompaniment, and I will say with the new piece, I tried to be a little bit smarter and easier on myself when I was writing it. Uh, with Saga, I wrote the entire accompaniment first, and then I wrote the horn part, and then I figured out how in the heck I was going to notate it. <laughs> so a lot of the nebulous slow stuff in Saga, I just made fit into meters, but I didn't plan it out initially. I just kind of free-formed play and played in real time, and then it was what it was. Uh, for the new piece, I tried to be much more methodical in terms of how I was writing it so that the click track uh, would be a lot more straightforward, a lot less wavering. There aren't as many metrical changes. Well, I say that, and then I'm thinking about the middle of this piece. <laughs> okay, I, I take that back. Um, but otherwise, I tried to literally orchestrate a metronome in the piece more often. So, you know, we'd have a, instead of just this nebulous long tones, we'd have a piano doing this kind of like Alberti melody type thing. So anyway, we have running eighth notes in the piano. Okay, there's your musical metronome. So it's hopefully easier to play along with. 
Um, I know I do also have a click track with it, so you can play with the click, you can play with the click and the accompaniment, um, which I think is helpful when playing with music uh, that's pre-recorded. Because I'll tell you what, as opposed to an accompanist or a collaborative pianist, uh, horn and tape pieces, they don't listen to you at all. It's really rude of them. <laughs> they just, they never adjust, you know? Computer's a real jerk. I know, right? <laughs> well, yeah, the, the click track on uh, Saga was really helpful to learn it, you know? I mean, after a while, you you just kind of know when things are going to change and you've got it in your head. But at first, I, I would have probably had a really hard time figuring out the timing of things without the click track. Well, that's a skill in and of itself that I think is great for people to learn is how to play with a click. So, you know, maybe they'll go on into studio work or maybe they'll do these types of movie score performances where you have your click in one ear. Mm -hmm. And if you haven't done that before, then that can be a a real challenge to go into your gig and have to do that. So practicing it beforehand, I think, is useful. Right. Man, I'm excited. So we're kind of set for a date on uh, releasing this. I'm going to have it open for a little bit longer. I've been overwhelmed with just the support of this project and the generosity of of people willing to help see this project come to light. Uh, It's absolutely wonderful. And so I'm trying my best to make it worth worth their time and their effort as well. Um, The the proposed date where we're going to release it is going to be January 1st. So it's going to be 2021. With the hopefully uh, better than 2020. I was going to say, setting the for the new year, man. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I, no, I'm really excited. And there'll be some, maybe an extra surprise or two along with the, the release of that, which I'm going to keep to myself right now. Okay. But um, maybe at the, I don't know, I don't know if you want to splice something in now, maybe at the end of this, we can put in a little, or another little uh, like teaser of some new material of the piece, some oh, stuff that sure. I've been working on. I'll tell you what, uh, I normally, at the beginning of this podcast, I have a um, piece that I wrote, like, there's like a quasi hip hop slash French horn piece. <laughs> oh, no, I like it. Yeah, I like yeah, the that's intro. That's how I like, like uh, put the intro, but maybe for this episode, the intro will be uh, some of this music. So. Cool. Nice. Well, hopefully someone won't turn the podcast on, hear it, and go, well, I think I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> Close it off, this, this rate is- the show a one, and move on. Oh, no way! Don't, don't rate the show a one, people. I only have like eleven ratings right now, so that's a lot more than my podcast. So you're doing great. <laughs> oh, thanks, man. So, all right, I forgot to ask you this at the beginning, but this is music on the rocks, after all. Yes. What do you happen to have in your glass in front of you right now? That's a good question. Uh, let's see. Do I remember? No. Uh, so when we uh, when we set this uh, podcast up the date to record this, I went to the store and I'm thinking, what, what am I going to get? I'm going to get something different. Uh-huh. Um, now anyone that knows me knows that I drink a lot of coffee. Uh, Cause I just like it. And also I find truthfully that it's kind of, it's a muse. It, it, you know, gets the juices flowing creatively. So I'm a big coffee fan. So uh, I have, this is a coffee liqueur that I found at the store it's not Kahlua because I didn't want all that sugar. Just another one. Uh, St. George, I think, is the... I don't know. Nice. The guy said it was good. I don't know if it has caffeine or not. Hopefully not because it's late. Well, I'll tell you what. If the guy said it was good, then it's good. And it is. <laughs> so what do you have? I am drinking scotch and soda. 
Well, yeah. Cheers. Cheers, man. <laughs> yeah, this is a Akintoshin 12-year-old. If only we had uh, still a batch of the... What was it? Was it uh, apple pie? Oh, dude. Or vanilla? It was... The, oh, the vanilla. Yeah. Right? Yeah. They had so many flavors at that place. I don't even remember. Yeah. But, yeah. Well, this Akintoshin <laughs> is, is a little bit special to me because... Uh, Boston Brass was giving a master class in concert at the uh, Royal Scottish Conservatory. And I went with a trombone professor. He took me to the Akintoshan Distillery. And we took the tour, had a great time. And then we had a, the best time ever in the tasting room at the end. They give you like little sips of each one to try. But we were the only people there for that day. So it ended up just being like this epic hang. So uh, nice. I always hold Akintosh and deer in my heart. Excellent. Well, this is one of the best ways I can think to spend a Saturday evening. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, uh, I'm always looking for silver linings in things, especially recently. And I will say that a silver lining is just the increased ability to have these kind of virtual connections and to, to talk with people from all over the place, really. And not only just talk to people, but just realize that we're all human. We're all going through it together. And I think there's something comforting, you know, comforting in that. And that we're just, even someone, you know, will put you on a pedestal because I, I did. But you're a real person, I think. Yeah, I've met you. You're a real person. But, you know, at and we're on, it's like the same thing that the Kendall Betts camp, um, people are, everyone's on a first name basis there because we're family, right? you know, no doctor, this, no professor that there's a time and a place for that for sure. But at a certain point, sometimes it's just, you know, I'm James and you're Chris and we're just chatting about music and what's better than that. Well said, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you so much. And, uh, oh, the pleasure has all been mine and I'm, super excited to share visions with the world and I know you're a part of it. So it's going to be really cool. It's going to be fun. And I think it's in a lot of ways, the future in standard repertoire for our instrument. So, all right, man, thanks so much. Take care. Have a good one. All right. Bye.